So beginning at verse 1. Now for, all, now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual morality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say. It is good for them to stay unmarried as I do, but if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Good evening. Okay, thank you so much for reading our passage. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you speak to us through it. Thank you, thank you that we can gather here this evening as um, a family to hear what you have to say to us. We pray that you enable us to pay attention, and we pray that we would um, be people who not only hear your word, but also do what your word says. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I recently read an, an article criticizing the church for teaching that sex uh, is impure. So they're saying the church teaches that sex is impure. I wonder what you make of that criticism. Is it true? Does the church believe and teach that sex is impure? I think that to some extent, it's a fair criticism. Allow me to read um, a few quotes from the early church fathers and what they thought about sex, even within marriage. This is sex within marriage. And here's what some of them had to say. So Clement of Alexandria said the following. To have coitus other than to procreate children is to do injury to nature. 
Jerome said this, Does Jovinianus, he was a heretic, does Jovinianus imagine that we approve of any sexual intercourse except for the procreation of children? And listen to how St. Augustine described uh, husbands and wives who had sex with each other for pleasure and not for procreation. He said, Husbands are shameful lovers. Wives are harlots. Bridal chambers are brothels. Fathers-in-law are pimps. That's pretty intense stuff, right? This is St. Augustine. The quotes I shared highlight just how narrowly many of the early church fathers viewed sex. It was for procreation, not for pleasure. And this view of sex, unsurprisingly, caused the church for many centuries to condemn contraceptive methods. It's probably, at least in part, why the Roman Catholic Church to this day still opposes contraception. You can see from the above how some people today might conclude that Christians are anti-sex and believe that sex is impure. But does the Bible teach us that sex is impure? Does God's word teach us that sex is only for procreation and not for pleasure? Last week, we learned about how sex can be sinful and dangerous. Paul said, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Paul tells us to flee sexual immorality and to honor God with our bodies. Why? Because the body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Since the Holy Spirit dwells within us, what we do with our bodies really, really matters, doesn't it? Now, I wonder if out of a desire to honor God with their bodies, some Christians in Corinth, I say some, not all, because some were licentious, as we've seen. Some thought that maybe they should just refrain from sex altogether. They may have reasoned, if sexual immorality is not good, maybe the safe thing to do is just to completely avoid having sex. Indeed, we, we get this impression in tonight's passage. We get, this, we get the impression that that is what some of them were thinking. Have a look at chapter 7, verse 1. Paul says, Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. What did they say to Paul? What did they write to him in the letter? Paul, it's good not to have sex. That's their belief. Now, is their statement true? Well, it depends, right? If the sexual 
relations involve fornication or adultery, then yeah, it's true. It's good not to have sex. But that blanket statement isn't always true, as Paul would go on to explain. The question we're thinking about tonight is, is it best to just avoid sex altogether? And Paul's answer is no. Sex in the right context is good, not bad. It's pure, not impure. That's our first point. Sex in the right context is good. Have a look at verse 2. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. And then look down to verse 5. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. What's the right context for sex? It's marriage. And it's marriage between a man and a woman. The text makes that clear, doesn't it? It's not marriage between a man and a man or a woman and a woman. I know that to say that in this day and age is highly offensive, but Paul is very clear. And so is Jesus in his teaching. So marriage is between a man and a woman, and this is the right context for sex. In this context, we learn that sex is good. So sex needn't be only for procreation as some of the early church fathers taught, but also for pleasure. And why is it good? We find at least three reasons in these, in these verses. The first is this. It helps to avoid sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is rife in Corinth. Not only is it, is it, uh, is it rife in the wider society, sadly, it's also present in the church. So what does Paul suggest as an antidote? He tells married people to have sex. And lots of it. Here's a command in God's word that people often don't talk about. But, but Paul says that having sex regularly with your spouse is a way of warding off temptation. A study in 2013 by a German university found that increased levels of oxytocin, a hormone that is released during sex, increases both the bond between a couple and their attraction to each other. In other words, having sex regularly with your spouse is great for your marriage. Do you want to flee sexual immorality? If you're married, then that doesn't mean having less sex with your spouse, as some Corinthians thought. It means having more sex. <laughs> so we've just considered the first reason that sex in the context of marriage is good. 
Why else is it good? The second reason is this. It's a way of serving your spouse. Let's read from verse 3. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. The second reason it's good for for married couples to have sex regularly is because it's a way of serving your husband or wife. Did you notice how Paul says that we have a duty to serve our spouse? Why do we have a duty? Because our body belongs to them. And there is a beautiful equality here in this passage. In in a patriarchal society, Paul was making what would have been a mind-blowing claim that a man's body belongs to his wife. People back then would have been accustomed to the idea that a woman belonged to her husband. But you'd never hear that a man belonged to his wife. But that's exactly what Paul is saying here. A man belongs to his wife just as much as his wife belongs to him. So they have a duty to serve each other, not only in a general sense, but also when it comes to sex. Now, what might this look like in practice? Firstly, I think you should never withhold sex from your partner as a way of getting back at them. That's, that's just not a godly thing to do. Your body, Paul says, be, belongs to them. Secondly, our lives can get extremely busy, can't they? Especially once kids have arrived. And we can very easily end up feeling like we just don't have much time for sex or or even much energy to prioritize it. To ensure sex and romance aren't squeezed out, it might be good for us to regularly evaluate our lifestyles. And maybe we can even ask our partner whether they feel like they're having enough sex. And if not, explore how how you can address that. And if something like work is constantly taking you away from your spouse for extended periods of time, it might be worth even considering changing jobs. Sex in marriage is good, Paul says. So it shouldn't be something we neglect. It should be something we prioritize. So do you think about how you might be able to serve your spouse in this area. Having sex with your spouse is good because it's a way of serving them. Finally, sex in marriage is good because it's a gift from God. Have a look at verse 7. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. 
When Paul says that he wishes that Christians were like him, what's he saying? He's saying that he wishes that more Christians were single as he is. Why? A Christian who's single and doesn't have children is is likely to be able to do more gospel ministry than a person who's married and or has children. If, If you're single and without children, you don't have to worry about trying to, to find the right school for your child or going to all your child's volleyball matches or frantically trying to find babysitters. You're generally more freed up to do ministry. And this is why Paul says that being single is a gift. And he'll go on to talk more about this uh, later on in our chapter. But being married is a gift too. When God created Eve, he created us so that Adam and Eve could have companionship. And he created sex for them to enjoy. In, In Genesis 2, before the fall, God called them to become one flesh. Before the fall. I was raised up in a Catholic home and and I was taught that Adam and Eve eating the forbidden fruit, that that was just a metaphor for them having sex, that their sin was actually them having sex. Do you see how wrong that is? That's not what the Bible teaches. They were called to become one flesh before the fall. Friends, marriage is a gift, and sex in marriage is a gift. Sex in this context is good. Before we move on to, to the next point, I just want to add the, the obvious but vital clarification that, of course, there's more to marriage than just sex. Some of you uh, may not be able to have sex with your spouse because of a, a medical condition, for example. Your marriage is still precious, and it's still a gift from God. You can still love your spouse and serve them, even if sex is difficult or not possible. You can still show kindness and affection to each other. And you can still help each other grow in your love for Jesus. You can still use your marriage to be Christ-like towards each other. Although sex in the context of marriage is good, marriage isn't only about sex. So is it best to just avoid sex altogether? No. In the right context, marriage, sex is good. That's verses 1 to 9. In verses 10 to 16, we see that staying married is good. That's our second point. Let's read from verse 10. To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her her husband. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he's willing to live with her, 
she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. It's quite a lot to, quite a lot to unpack there. But um, did you notice how in verse 10, Paul gives an instruction and then says, not I, but the Lord. And then in verse 12, he gives another instruction, but this time he says, I, not the Lord. I think it's very easy to, to read that and to think that Paul is implying that his words are less authoritative for us than Jesus's. But that would be to misinterpret what he's saying. When he says, not I, but the Lord in verse 10, he's simply acknowledging that he's referencing Jesus's teaching on marriage and divorce. It's like he's adding a little footnote there. Oh, this is what Jesus teaches. That's what he's doing. He doesn't want to plagiarize. And then when he says, I, not the Lord, in verse 12, he's clarifying that he's, he's now applying Jesus' teaching to the specific situation in Corinth. And what is that situation? As we've seen, you've got, you have Christians in Corinth who, who think that avoiding sex altogether is, is spiritually beneficial. Because of this belief, some of them might be tempted to quit their marriages. One way to stop having sex could be to just end your marriage. But Paul has just said that sex in the context of marriage is good, hasn't he? So that's just one of many reasons why it's good to stay married. But what if you're married to a non-Christian? It appears that some Corinthian Christians might have been seriously contemplating leaving their non-Christian spouses. That's why I think he tells them not to get divorced in verses 12 and 13. And that's also why I think he says what he does in verse 14. He says, for the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. So in the Corinthian church, you had Christians who were married to non-Christians, as you do in our church and in churches all over. Notice what Paul wants us to know about non-Christians who are married to Christians. He tells us they've been sanctified. What on earth does that mean? It doesn't mean that your non-Christian spouse is saved by virtue of being married to you. It's important to note that the word sanctified here does not mean saved. It means clean. So no, your your non-Christian spouse is not saved just because they're married to you. To illustrate this, in the Gospels, we learn of an occasion when Jesus cleanses 10 lepers. Do you remember how many of them came back to him to say thank you? Just one. One of them came back to him to thank him. 
And it's to this one cleansed leper that Jesus says, your faith has saved you. Your faith has saved you. Jesus did not say that to, to the other nine who were cleansed. So we learned that only one of them was actually saved, and that because of his faith. So you can see how it's possible to be clean without being saved. Now back to the Corinthian church. Why would this have been relevant to those Christians who were married to non-believers? They might have thought that they were being defiled or made unclean by remaining with their unbelieving spouses. But Paul says that that is categorically not the case. He teaches that a, a Christian is not made unclean by remaining married to an unbeliever, but rather that the non-Christian is in some sense made clean by being married to the Christian. So being married to to a non-Christian does not mean you should try to end your marriage. Your marriage is still good. God still values it. And Paul teaches in this passage that he might even use it to bring your unbelieving spouse to faith in Christ. Now, to be sure, that's not guaranteed. But it is possible. There are certainly many people here in our own church who, through being married to a Christian, in God's tremendous kindness, have come to know Jesus. By the way, if you're single, this does not mean it's okay to date a non-Christian. And we'll learn more about that towards the end of chapter 7. We need to remember here that Paul is speaking to, to those who are already married to an unbeliever. He's not speaking to singles over here. Folks, whether you're married to a Christian or to a non-Christian, it is good to stay married. Now, does this mean that divorce is never permitted? There are occasions, according to the Bible, where it is, such as in cases of infidelity or if your spouse chooses to walk away, as we see in verse 15. If you have more questions on marriage and divorce, um, do write them down and, and, and ask that question at our Q&A session, which is happening in a couple of of weeks' time. As Christians, Paul is teaching us that we should seek to preserve marriages if possible. And we should not take the ending of a marriage lightly. Our society has become so indifferent to divorce, hasn't it? It's not really seen as a big deal. And this is highlighted by the fact that you can now get a no-fault Divorce. We should remember that marriage is good, and unless we have valid reasons for a divorce, we should seek to stay married. Tonight, we've been thinking about the goodness of sex and marriage. And I want to close with a picture of a marriage far greater 
than any couple will ever have in this world. It comes from Revelation 19, and this is what it says. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Folks, whether we are single or married, there is a sense in which we are all married. As the church, as the bride of Christ, we are married to to Jesus. And he is the most amazing spouse we could ever dream of. Jesus is a spouse who loves us more than any spouse on earth ever could. He is a spouse who's willing to do whatever it takes to ensure you're safe. He would even die for you if he had to. He'd even go through hell for you. And that is precisely what he did at Calvary. Friends, Jesus is the spouse we all need. He will never be unfaithful to us. And he will never leave us. Jesus is the spouse who can wash away our sin and make us pure. Who else in the world can do that? And Jesus marries us even though we don't deserve him. Indeed, he chooses us not because we are worthy and righteous, but in order to make us worthy and righteous. That's how much he loves us. I wonder if you know him. If you do, rejoice. And if you don't, repent and put your trust in him. I promise you that, that you, will, you will find no greater love than his love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the gifts you give us. Father, we thank you for the gift of marriage and the gift of sex within marriage. Father, thank you that sex is not impure. And Father, forgive us as Christians and as a church for, for times when maybe we have given off that impression. Even today, it feels like we can get a bit nervous talking about the subject, but sex is something that you created, and you created it to be good and to be enjoyed in the context of marriage. And Father, we thank you so much for the greater marriage that we as your church enjoy. Thank you so much for the wonderful husband, the wonderful bridegroom we have in Jesus. Cause us to rejoice in him tonight and this week. And we ask it in his name. Amen.